Okay, so this week's uh, Torah portion is the beginning of the book of Shemot. And it starts with a whole new dimension of the Jewish people. Before, it was a family. It reached to the number of 70. And in many ways, it wasn't a nation. It was a family. Abraham, Isaac. Jacob, Jacob's children, Jacob's great, uh, Jacob's grandchildren, Jacob's great-grandchildren. But now, you know, there is this painful moment in which, and many cannot survive this painful moment. There's a painful moment in which a mom and pop shop is going to decide if they're going to go public. And a lot of the dimension has to change. The mom and pop is, is more based on the warmth. The corporation is more, is more based on perfected procedures. And, you know, there's a balance where hopefully the mom and pop isn't a total mess and the corporate isn't completely cold. But if we're going to pay attention what's happening from Chumash Bereshis to Chumash Shemois, we do need to embrace that there is a huge, a huge transformation that is taking place now from a very intimate relationship of the few to a far more established, functioning, corporate, procedural nation. And yet we're going to pay attention to how God keeps the intimacy, how Moses and Aaron is continuously imbuing the people with the intimacy, and yet nevertheless, we're finding a total transformation into how a nation, a nation can survive. So it, there's a lot of interesting things to pay attention to here that maybe my teachers didn't teach me and just, you know, I'm, I'm just exploring this and I'm exploring it with you. I also am gonna focus at the end, as I just texted out, I text out, I think what we're gonna learn from this procedure here is before this even begins, God lays down the foundation, which is the one and only relationship that every human being has to have all other relationships will depend upon whether we do or don't have this relationship so let's dive into this and these are the names of the children of israel that came down to egypt jacob and his household and here it starts listing when it says these are the names unlike in the torah portion that we learned two weeks ago where God counts, the Torah counts all the 70 people. Here it's only counting the children by name. It's only counting the children of Jacob. And then it goes on to say, and the offspring equal 70. Now, there's a lot to be understood here. This is what we're going to focus on later. And I'm going to try this time to leave enough time um, so that we can deal with it a little bit more than just rush through it because we're running late. So I'll try to curb myself throughout the Torah portion. 
um, but we need to understand why. Why is, why is it counting again? And Rashi immediately picks this up and tells us that it's out of a, a, a preciousness, you know, in which we're compared to, to the stars, that he takes them out, he brings them in with, with numbers and counting, like we say in our, our, our names, like we say in our prayers, that he brings forth the stars by names. So we need to understand what that means. What exactly is the importance of that? What is it, this chiba, this cherishing preciousness? Anyway, let's move on to learn that Joseph and his brothers passed away. And only after they passed away did the suffering part of the exile in Egypt begin. So I want to take you very briefly, very quickly through the exile of Egypt. God tells Abraham that they're going to be for four generations. The verse refers to our, ex our exile in Egypt as 400 years. However, we were actually, from when Jacob came down, we were there, redu, redu, reish talad vav, 210 years. So how do you get to the verse saying we were 400 years? And the answer is that God began counting by the birth of Isaac, which was the beginning of the fulfillment of that covenant. On the other hand, they went down, like I said, 210 years. However, within that 210 years itself, there were good years, pleasant years. Now, the son of Jacob, which lived the longest, is Levi. Levi lived 130 years. Now, if we do the calculation of how old he was when he came to Egypt, we will now see how many years there was the actual suffering because until he died, there was no suffering. And in Kabbalah and in Hasidus, there's huge understandings of what's going on here. Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, they lived in the spiritual dimension of consciousness and clarity and unity, which is called the world of Atzilut. The, word of, the world of Atzilut in Kabbalah and Hasidus has two meanings. One comes toward Etzel, which means next to, and the other one comes from the word Vaya'atzilu, which means to bring forth, which basically means that they were not separated. They lived as ocean sea creatures, which live within the waters. So too, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived within the divinity, within the Ein Sof, within the consciousness of God. The offspring, meaning his sons, they already did not live in that dimension. However, they were consistently connected to that dimension. Hence, when you're living in the dimension in which you're conscious of God is everything and everything is God, you live in a total different paradigm. For example, when the holy temple was erect, we are actually taught 
that because the consciousness, the divinity, the revelation was there, hence the Jewish people, and not only Jewish people, Gentiles, anyone that would come to the Holy Temple would see in front of his eyes consistent miracles. I'm going to just list one of them so you can see what the miracle we're talking about. Jerusalem's on a mountain. It's pretty windy. In Jerusalem itself, there is the Temple Mount, which gets quite windy and quite cold. The altar on which all sacrifices were brought, other than the Yom Kippur sacrifices and the daily incense, which is not a sacrifice, was outside in the courtyard. There was a fire, there was actually three fires, that were consistently on that altar. And it was consistently meat roasting, the portions of the sacrifice. And there was wood burning. Hence, there was smoke. There was a pillar of smoke. Now, simply speaking, when there's a pillar of smoke outside in a windy place, the smoke is going to be blown around. And yet, nevertheless, while the, the woman had to hold on to her shaito because it was windy, and while the man had to hold on to his hat or his keeper because it was windy, they looked at the altar and they saw the pillar of smoke going up directly straight as if there was no wind at, wind at all. Now, the physical seeing of that physical miracle is simply because of the consciousness and paradigm that existed in the Holy Temple. Hence, we were open and the world was open, that area was open to experience complete unity between nature and miracles, divinity and nature. So understand that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived in that paradigm Hence, in Egypt, they were not experiencing any suffering. Even the offspring, their 12 sons, they too, because they were connected to their father, as the verse says, Shema Yisrael, hear our father Israel, the second name for Jacob. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Your God is our God, and we only have one God. Hence, as long as they were alive, the conscious presence of God, or should I say the consciousness of the presence of God, protected them from any suffering, and they lived in a paradigm of bliss. It was only when they died that now came a new generation that wasn't connected to that consciousness of God's presence, Hence, that gave an opening to doubt. Hence, that gave an opening to opaqueness. Hence, that gave an opening to suffering. And we're taught that the Jewish people multiplied. If you do the mathematics of the amount of years in which we went from 70 people to millions of people, you're going to see that they must have been reproducing with not having sin single children. Rather, our sages tell us that they were having sextuplets. And we learn it out from this verse over here, if you count the words, Baru, 
Now, there's all language, six different terminologies for um, uh, reproducing, for multiplying. Now, this concept, first of all, I said millions, and you may ask, what are you talking about, Rabbi? There's only 600,000 men. So first of all, just to put things in perspective, 600,000 was only from the age of 20 to 60 and only men. So we have the women and we have the children and we have the, the senior citizens. On top of that, we're going to learn that only one-fifth of the Jewish people agreed to leave Egypt. The other four-fifths died and were buried in Egypt. So if we're going to say that the 600,000 is really 1.3 million, if you count the women, the children, the senior citizens, and then you're going to realize that that's only one-fifth, you realize that the Jewish people multiplied literally into millions, into five plus or more, much more millions. Anyway, so that was happening. And again, even this has a mystical insight. We, the Jewish people, have always, always strived and produced our masterpieces specifically in the darkest times. For example, the Talmud, the masterpiece Talmud, was not created in the Solomonic days. It was created in Babylon when we were in exile and we were suffering. Rabbi Akiva, he was tortured and put to death together with his colleagues. This was not a rosy time. The man who compiled the Zohar, he composed three parts of it and compiled the other seven parts of it. He was in a cave for years, hiding with his son. So this concept of survival bringing forth an unbelievable growth, success, and prosperity is our trademark. And it's important to understand this, that, and I'm not gonna do comparative, but there are minorities that went through suffering and they were literally pushed into, trained, by their own leadership to live with resentment, hatred, and victimhood. Always pointing on who's to blame that their people are suffering. The Jewish leadership has always pushed our people into accepting responsibility no matter what and overcoming challenges. We knew that we weren't allowed into the colleges. We knew that we, we were against all odds. And the way the leadership taught the youth is that you're going to have to become the doctor and the lawyer that the others have no choice but to want because of your success in the field, in how good you do your work and how committed you are. And that was always the dynamics. It's always been there. Another step. We're going to learn in this portions that the men weren't always able to hold on to that. It was actually the women that were able to tell the men in the darkest times when men were already giving up. It was the women who made sure that they don't give up. It's the women who made sure that they would have children. They had to seduce the men. You're going to see in the parshas to go ahead and say, don't give up. No, we're not having babies to feed a killing machine. 
there's a light beyond the darkness. There's a the dawn beyond midnight. So that was our people. Our leaders and our women were always able to do that. Now, we now have another verse that says that there arose a new King Pharaoh. Now, there is an argument in the Talmud whether it was really new or it was the old that made himself like he was new. According to one opinion, it was new. And obviously, that opinion makes sense more on the scientific, logical side because if the one that knew Joseph lived more than 210 years before the Exodus because he already knew Joseph, which was before 20, uh, um, X amount of years, I'm not going to figure it out right now, before um, the Jacob came, Joseph already knew him, right? We have nine years at least that he was king from the seven good years and then the two, and the two years of famine. And now we're talking about 210 years later. So it's kind of hard to say that it's the same person. And even according to the verse that says that when Moses ran away, Pharaoh died. And then you want to say that he really died. But you're talking about way too many years later. Because in this time, people were not living those long numbers. Nevertheless, there's one opinion that says that it was the same Pharaoh only that he made himself new, which means he played like he didn't know the role that Joseph played in, in uh, Egypt and what the Jews meant to Egypt. He turned a blind eye and started seeing them as a problem rather as a, a foundation to their civilization, to their financing, so forth and so on. And this is a story which will repeatedly happen. You know, first, they're happy that we create a foundation and a system, be it financial or whatever it may be, very often financial. And then all of a sudden, it turns and they become jealous and they see us as the controllers and so forth and so on. So that's what happens. And he says that, let us go ahead and make a plan against them. Now, I want to share with you insights. And again, I'm really going to try to stay focused with the time here. So a little bit of insights. Who did Pharaoh use as his advisors? Our sages tell us that there were three advisors that he turned to. One was Jithro, one was Job, and one was Bilam. Jithro spoke good for the Jewish people. He said, what do you want from them? They're not doing anything. He had to run away. His reward was that he would become the father-in-law of Moses and his offspring would be studying Torah in Israel. Parenthetically speaking, that's how Moses found the staff. According to Kabbalah, the staff came from the tree of life. The Talmud simply says that it was, Rashi says it was sapphire. But I'm just sharing with you. It ended up from Adam taking it out of the Garden of Eden, eventually goes to Noah, from Noah goes to his son, Shes, and then, then from, from Shem, and then from Shem, it ends down by Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef. Yosef brings it to the palace. Yosef dies, it remains in the palace. Yisro, when he sees he has to run away, grabs it and takes it with him to Midian. He sticks it in the ground, is never able to take it out until Moses comes, and Moses didn't know anything about it. He just took it out, and Yisro asked him, How did, where did you get that from? He said, from your backyard. 
he says, well, if you were able to take it out, it's meant for you. So that's the history of that. But let's get back to what we were talking about. Job kept silent. He didn't say pro or, or con, and therefore he had a life of suffering. Bilam, the wicked one who would end up being the prophet who's hired to curse the Jews, he's the one that gave the idea of the suffering. And therefore he ends up being killed by the Jews in the war um, with the Midianites. Going further, he, call, he calls out to the midwives. The midwives are the two women. Again, I'm just sharing with you some questions I always have and I don't have answers to. How are you going to tell me that there were two midwives for the entire Jewish nation when they were multiplying so rapidly? But that's what the verse says. So maybe it's the two main ones or the ones that headed the whole department. But these two are called Shifra and Pua, which are names, work names, because their real names were Yocheved and Miriam, a mother and a daughter. One opinion that Talmud says it was a mother and a daughter-in-law was Miriam. Now, I'm sorry, it was, it, let's try again. One says, well, let's just take this. It's Yocheved and, and, and Miriam, Moses' mother and Moses' um, daughter, daughter, a sister. And they're called Shifra and Pua because of what they did. Shifra means to adjust and to align, to straighten out the bones after the baby is born. And then Pua is come from the word pet, to go ahead and to coo, to coo to the child, to make them calm. And Taro tells them, the girls you should have let live, the boys you shall kill, because as astrologists saw that there's going to be a boy born to them that will take the Jewish people out of Egypt. They didn't listen. Pharaoh calls them in and says, how come you're not listening to me? Why are there so many boys around? And they answer, because our women are not like your women. They were blessed by Jacob to be compared to animals, and animals give birth on their own. So hence, therefore, it's not our fault. You know, we're not going to take away their babies living, but we don't get to birth them. And obviously they were lying, and obviously they were, they were fearing God, and God gives them a reward. What is the reward? He gave them dynasties. Miriam is to marry Kalev, who's from the tribe of Judah, from which their offspring comes the monarchy, King David. And Yocheved is the wife of Levi, from who will come the Levites and the priesthood, because one of her sons, her oldest son, Aaron, is going to become the high priest, and his, and his children will be Kohanim, priests. Okay, let's go ahead further. After that, we hear that it comes to a point where Pharaoh says, today, every boy that's born will be killed. And our sages tell us, because his stargazer said, today is the day. He's going to be born today, but I don't know. They said, we don't know if he's going to be a Jew or an Egyptian. So Pharaoh said, cross the board, every boy born today dies. Now, I'm going to give you my homemade thoughts. So please, this is not something I read or not. But I'm going to share with you, when I was learning it this week, I was thinking to myself, why didn't they see whether it's a Jew or an Egyptian? Why? What was the point of that? Why? And the answer that I'm going to suggest is because you remember from last week, we learned concerning Yosef's wife, two weeks ago, concerning Yosef's wife. 
three weeks ago actually, and concerning, we learned about Joseph's mother. You remember in the dream after his mother died, he dreamt that the moon is going to bow to him. And the moon represented Bila, which was the one that adopted him and brought him up. So too, Osnas was called the daughter of Potiphera when she was really the daughter of Dina, simply because she was adopted by them and they brought her up. Hence, we see that adoptive parents have a law of a parent. So from that perspective, I would like to present an idea that the reason why they didn't see whether he's a Jew or an Egyptian is because he was born with a Jewish mother. Okay, let's just mute everyone. He was born to a Jewish mother while he was brought up by an Egyptian mother. I'm going to just make that suggestion. If you like it, take it. So going back to the point over here, there, I want to give you some insights. It says over here, all of a sudden in chapter two, that Moses' father, Amram, is all of a sudden marries uh, a woman who actually was his aunt, which today is prohibited, but then it was before the Torah came. And he married his aunt. And now the question is, why does it say that if they were already married and they already had kids? And the Talmud tells us, because Amram divorced his wife. He says, why should we have babies just to feed a killing machine? And when he did it, obviously everyone else did it. If the leader is doing this, then we should do it too. Came along his daughter Miriam and told him, how can you do that? You're worse than Pharaoh. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, first of all, Pharaoh only decreed on the boys. By you divorcing and calling all, causing all the Jews to divorce, you're now making a decree against boys and girls. Number one. Number two, Pharaoh doesn't have the, the blessings of God. So what he decrees will end up being overturned. However, you are a Torah person. You are a tzaddik. You have the blessings of God. If you create this decree, it, it won't, heaven won't overrule it. And then she went and she prophesied that they're going to give birth to the Redeemer. And that's why Miriam is called a prophetess. She's one of the prophetess. And here, that's where she said her prophecy. Now, with this being the case, Levi remarries his wife and they have a baby. And when they have a baby, and the Talmud says, the verse says that, we, that they saw that the baby is good. And the Talmud says, well, what was that supposed to be? How do you know the baby's good? And the one opinion is they saw the house filled with light. Another opinion is that they saw that he was born circumcised, which was unusual. Be it as it may, the father kissed the daughter on the head and said, your prophecy came true. However, he was born in the beginning of the seventh month of gestation, of pregnancy. Hence, they were able to hide him for three months. After three months, being that the Egyptians kept a cataloging, when they noticed a woman being pregnant to come back to, to pick up the child, so therefore she had to then let go of the child and put him somewhere else safe. And that's when she went and she made a basket and she put a baby in the basket and put it onto the Nile River. And what happens is that the father then tofah. He went, boom, to his daughter's head and said, no, where's your prophecy now? And that is why Miriam actually stays right there to watch and see what's going to happen to Moses. What happens is that Pharaoh's daughter 
comes to bathe and she comes with her maidens. Now, there's an opinion in the Talmud that says that Pharaoh's wife, Pharaoh's daughter came to convert and hence her name is Batya. Batya means the daughter of God. Parenthetically speaking, this will be the second Egyptian princess that's going through this because as you know, Abraham has a wife called Hagar. Later, she's called Keturah. She too was a princess, the daughter of a pharaoh who went with Abraham after the miracles that happened with Sarah. Now, she goes ahead. Now, there's two opinions. It says opinion number one is that the Amma, Fisholak has Amma. She sent her Amma. Amma can simply mean a maiden. She sent one of her maids. She hears a baby crying. Bring the baby. What's going on there? Another opinion is that no. Actually, when they realize it was going to be a Jewish baby, they tell her in other situations, the subjects may or may not listen to their king, but a daughter not to listen to her father, the king. And it says that Gabriel, the angel, killed them, leaving only one alive in order that they shouldn't get in the way. According to this opinion, he act, she actually reached out her hand and the word Amma, Amma means from the word of measurement of a Amma, which is a length, meaning that a miracle happened and her hand reached out to, to get the baby. Now, I want to share with you quickly an insight on this. Two things. Number one, the question asked here is why did she reach out her hand? Imagine if I'm sitting here and 300 feet away from me, there's something there. Either I'm going to go get it, and if I can't get it, I'm just going to not get it. But I'm not going to like reach out my hand, oh, oh, you know, what, what, what is that? So the mere fact that she reached out her hand, we are taught, teaches us a lesson. We need to do our hishtaglut. What we learn is that the work is ours, the results are God's. Hence, it's not for us to decide what the results will be. We need to put in our effort. And then God will decide what the results will be. Now, what happens after that is that she goes ahead, she brings the baby back to the house. And there's a story that's not mentioned in the written law, but it's mentioned in the in the oral law, which explains to us why we're going to see that Moses, when he fights with God, argues with God, he says, I am a kvad pet. I have a speech impediment. Because one time when Moses was sitting on the lap of Pharaoh, he was playing around and he took the crown of Pharaoh and put it on his head. Now, being that we're living in a, in a land of sorcery, a land of, of superstition, some of them immediately said, this is not a good sign. This isn't just plain. Another one said that, no, come on, it's shiny. Kids go for shiny things. So they, how are they going to find out? They took a bowl of gold and they took a bowl of coils, burning coals. Now, coals, not coils. Now, if Moses would reach for the shiny thing, the coals are shinier when they're red and everything than the gold so now we'll know what it is is this an omen or is it just really a kid reaching for a shiny object and what happens is 
that Moses reaches out for the gold, comes our sages and tell us that again, Gabriel was sent to push his hand, he burns his finger, touches his, his mouth, and that's how he ends up with a speech impediment. Now, the next thing is that Moses becomes older. Oh, I skipped the whole thing. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. She tries to nurse the baby to get him to stop crying. Moses would not nurse from an Egyptian wet nurse. And the reason is our sages tell us God prevented him to do that because God would be talking through his mouth. And therefore, he only wanted his mouth to have from the kosher milk of a Jewish woman. And that's when Miriam pipes up and says, hey, I can bring you a, a, wet, a wet nurse. She runs home, gets her mother. The mother goes ahead and takes the child, her very own child, unbeknown to the daughter of Pharaoh, Batya. She nurses him. And after three years old, he's brought to, after the nursing period, he's brought to, to Pharaoh. And now he's growing up in, in uh, the palace. Now, what happens is it says, by Yigdal, and he grew up. Here it means he grew up, meaning he became more of an adult. And now it was a time, adulthood begins primarily with defining an identity. That's what changes between a kid and an adult. A kid one day wants to be a singer, another day a fireman, another day, and the whole concept of having an identity and knowing that he's a part of a family isn't in a child's mind. The child is the center of the universe and everything evolves around him or her. When you grow up, you become more mature, you realize that you need an identity. An identity is not defining who you are. First, you have to accept that with defining who you are, you're defining who you are not. And here I heard an interesting twist to the story. It says that he came out and he saw an Egyptian hitting uh, a Jew. And Moses, it says that he looked here and he looked there and he saw no one and he killed the Egyptian. There is an interesting twist I heard that says he looked here to see who am I? Am I the Egyptian? He looked there. Who am I? Am I the Jew? Wh whose side am I on? Who am I? And by him making his decision, he truly grew up and he made an identity. I am a Jew, period. So therefore, that's a very interesting moment in his story where he, he on one hand knows that he's a Jew biologically. On the other hand, he knows that he's being brought up as an Egyptian and making that identity call was the moment of growing up. And again, I find the maturity not in saying who you are, but the bigger maturity is, is by realizing when you say who you are, you're simultaneously saying who you're not. And that's an identity you need to stick with and not wishy-washy and try to be everything for everyone. Now we go further. The next day he sees two Jews that are fighting. And when it comes to these two Jews, he sees one lifting his hand to hit another one. And he says, Russia, wicked one. Loma Sakas Riacha, why are you going to hit your friend? Now, just to tell you, parenthetically speaking, these two people are going to be a, a thorn in Moses' side until they get swallowed up by the earth in the story that we'll learn in the book of Numbers about the story of Korach. And this is Datan and Aviram. And he snaps at Moses and says, Who made you a leader? What are you going to kill us like, you're gonna, like you killed the Egyptian? And all of a sudden, Moses realized that his secret isn't safe. And sure enough, they snitched to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh wants to kill him and God makes a miracle. This is the second righteous person who God makes a miracle and transforms for a moment his neck into marble. One was Jacob when Esau tried to bite him. and The other one was Moses when Pharaoh tried to behead him. And hence we'll have a verse in Tehillim talking about how God saved Moses from this event. And then Moses runs away. Now, if you read the story in the Torah, you're going to read that Moses ran to Midian, and the next thing he does, he meets his future wife. And, but there's an oral tradition here that Moses, before from Egypt until Midian, he made a 40-year detour in a land called Cush. I'm going to quickly tell you the story. The story is that Moses happens upon an interesting scene. There's a king and his army that is locked out of his own, his own palace. And the reason is because they emptied out the moat of water, filled it with scorpions and, and poisonous um, as, uh, scorpions and whatever, maybe reptiles, and they closed the, the, uh, the uh, what's it called, that wood. And now they're stuck. He's sending soldiers in there, and they're getting killed. Moses happens upon this, and here's what happens. And Moses tells the king, I can advise you on how to get back your kingdom. And he says, how so? He says, what you need to do is you need to capture vultures, put them in cages and starve them for three days. Then line them up around the moat and let them go. Their hunger will blind their natural senses of knowing that these are poisonous and they shouldn't scoop down to eat them. Hence, they'll all fly away with one and you'll have an empty moat and you'll be able to get in. And so it was. And here too, he now became adopted by the king and he was growing up as the prince. And then when the king died, the queen told him that you're king, but we need to keep it in our lineage, so you're gonna to have to marry our daughter. Moses said, no, thank you. And that's when Moses leaves after being king of this kingdom for quite a while. That's the next thing comes back to the verse. And over here, he goes ahead and he meets at the well, and he helps the daughters, the daughter. Now what happens is that Yisrael knows that he's in trouble. Why? Number one, he only has daughters. He doesn't have sons that can protect themselves when they go to the, to the uh, place where they're gonna water their flock. Now, why would Yisrael need protection? Interesting enough, we're going to hear later that Yisrael tells Moses, now I know that God is the only true God. And our sages say, well, how do you know? Maybe there are other true gods too. So they say from here we know that Yisrael was a truth seeker. And he went from one religion to another religion to another religion until finally he denounced all these deities. And hence the people there shunned him and they made trouble for the daughters when they came with the flock. So all of a sudden the girl comes back and sees, and the father sees, what are you doing back so early? He says, actually a guy helped me. He says, who is this guy? And why don't you bring him home? And they bring home 
she goes back and she brings Moses home. Yisro knows who Moses is. I told you, Yisro was in the palace. And Yisro realizes that this guy is on Egypt's wanted list. And if Pharaoh finds out that he's housing him, Pharaoh is going to come after him. So believe it or not, like a good future father-in-law, the first thing Yisro does is try to kill his future son-in-law. He throws Moses into a pit. Moses stayed in the pit for years. Tipora would sneak him food every single day, night. And what happened was that years later, when she felt that it was now safe, she says to her father, you remember that guy who helped me and you threw him into the pit? He says, yeah. She says, what do you think is going on with him? He says, well, he probably died, you know, hunger, whatever, he's in the pit. He says, if he's alive, can he come out now? And the father-in-law says, yeah, if he's alive now, he can come out, it's safe. And that's when she brings him out, and obviously the father realizes what happened, and they get married. The next story is that they end up, he takes over, and he's taking care of the flock, and all of a sudden, he's taking the flock, and he brings them, close to Mount Sinai, and one of the sheep run away. Moses proves himself to God that he has the makings of a true leader by showing that he doesn't just see the forest, he sees the tree, each tree in the forest, and he goes after the flock, after the sheep. And, and he goes after the sheep, he sees the burning bush. I wanna just give you a most practical insight. When he saw the burning bush, God didn't talk to him. It says, and Moses turned and said, how awesome is this sight? Let me see it. Then the verse says, when God saw that Moses turned to see, he spoke to him. What does that mean? Practically speaking, what that means is that God will talk to those who are not going to race through life and not see the novelties and the godliness that's happening around, happening around them. I was literally driving on the 95, seeing a car in the pullover lane on fire, and no one stopped. Who has the time? We're in a rush. We don't stop to say, what's going on here? Something unique is going on here. And when we become so numb to see uniqueness, novelties, God talking to us, then we've closed ourselves off from having communication with God. Hence, it's such a deep verse here that says, and Moses stopped to look and contemplate. And then it says, and when God saw that he turned and looked to contemplate, God spoke to him. Very deep teaching. Now, we go further with this. And now God starts telling him, I am God. You're in holy land. Take off your, take off your, uh, your shoes. And Moses covers his face. By the way, our sages tell us that later on in history, when Moses asked God, let me see your face, and God said, no, you can only see my back. So there are sages that say that the mystical teaching is, when I wanted to show you my face, you covered your eyes. Now, you can only see my back. Uninteresting. We learn that Moses argued with God for seven days. Who am I? I have a speech impediment. Why me? There are different opinions on why Moses was saying that. One opinion is that he said, I'm not the real redeemer. 
they're going to go back into exile. We need to wait for Mashiach. So why do you have to send me now and then make it not real? Send Mashiach and it'll be real and permanent. And obviously God says, no, it isn't the time for that. Another opinion says that he was worried about the honor of his older brother. And he said, for all these years after my father died, my older brother was the leader. He carried them through the suffering. Now I'm going to come along for the glory and the miracles? My brother deserves to be it. And God says, no, you. And finally, when Moses doesn't let up, God says, you and let Aaron be your mouthpiece. And that's what ends up happening. We go on further. He comes. An interesting story happens on the way. He had two sons, and him and Zipporah come towards um, Egypt on the, on the mission that God gave him. He took permission from his father-in-law, and he's going back to Egypt. And our sages tell us he took permission because actually the condition of the marriage was that he, that he wouldn't go back to Egypt. But now that Yisro sees it's God sending him, Yisro says, then you're, you're free to go. And they go. Now, interesting, it says that he took a donkey. Now, I want to just quickly share with you a mystical teaching. Three times we find a donkey. We find that when Abraham took Isaac to the binding, it says, and he loaded the donkey. Only that, only the wood and the material went on the donkey, not the humans. Moses, it says, he didn't go on the donkey. He put his wife and kids on the donkey. And then it says, Mashiach will come riding on a donkey. Now, the word for donkey in Hebrew is chamor. The mystical play of that word is chomer, which means material. Everyone has a material and a form. We're made out of flesh and bones and blood. Our material is no different than that of an animal. What differs is our form. Hence, we're saying here that we're seeing an evolution that's happening. Abraham is starting to bring God down to earth. He's starting to teach people to thank God, to bless God. However, the transformation is just beginning. Hence, the donkey can only serve as a tool to the service of God. Moses is going to the next stage. He's going to take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them to Mount Sinai. Hence, his wife, not he himself, but at least his wife and kids can ride on the donkey. They're becoming transformed. Mashiach is coming to completely transform the physical, where our physical will be as spiritual as our soul. Hence, when Mashiach comes, we're taught that not the body will receive life from the soul, but the soul will receive its life, its higher life from the body. So I just wanted to share that about the donkey with you. And then when we get up to the story with Bilaam's donkey, I'll tell you the relationship between the donkeys. But moving right along over here, on the way, he goes to, to camp out, and he almost gets killed. And when he, gets ki when he almost gets killed, his wife Zipporah sees by the way this unique beast swallowed him, that the lips ended up meeting at his circumcision. Hence, Zipporah understood that this is a punishment because Moses in his rush to get to Egypt didn't want to circumcise his newborn baby because then he would have to wait. Hence, now that he's finding already homage, he's already at a place, therefore, he should have immediately done it. 
So actually Tipporah is the one that does the circumcision on her son and immediately this creature lets go of Moses and she realizes, yes, she saved her husband's life. Now, after that, we're told all along, I want to just point out to you, I skipped a little bit, so I want to just go back and point out just very important pieces. And that is that Moses was told by God that the whole purpose of the Exodus is that they come to this mountain to serve me, which means the purpose of leaving Egypt not to be the Egyptians' slaves is so that we can become God's slaves. It isn't for us to just, we have to understand what democracy really means. Democracy for the Jew does not mean the freedom of any obedience, but rather it means the freedom to accept your most inner connection to obedience, which is your God of your understanding and your Torah mitzvot. Now, also, he immediately tells Moses that they're going to leave with great wealth. And that's what he promised Abraham. They're going to be servants and they're going to suffer, but then they're going to leave with great wealth. Here, too, we need to learn out that nothing in our suffering is ever just to have us survive. God is not making us into survivors. That would be a waste of a suffering. Rather, the whole purpose of suffering is to reach greater heights, prosperity, physically, spiritually. And that's what God is telling Moses. This isn't in vain. This is for prosperity. And then he comes to Egypt and Aaron is told by God, go out and greet him. And when he goes ahead and he greets him, um, he says, who are these? He says, this is my wife and kids. He says, we're trying to get the Jews out of Egypt. You want to bring more Jews into Egypt? And Moses sends them back home. This will explain to you a dichotomy. Here it says that Moses brought his wife and kids to Egypt. Later, we're going to learn that Jitro comes with his wife in Egypt, brings them back to Moses. How did that happen? Now you know. Anyway, he goes and he gathers the Jewish people. He tells the elders that the time has come. And actually, it says that the elders were not able, the Jews were not able to digest and believe and accept what Moses was telling them because of their suffering and their hard work. And therefore, look how the Torah tells us. You always think that God's going to punish us for not having faith. Not at all. God understands the situation we're in, where we don't have broad minds. We're in a rat race trying to survive. We're suffering. We're working so hard. We're trying to manage with a COVID. We're trying to manage with, with a, a society that has gone nuts on us. So God understands this. Don't think God's going to punish you. Anyway, what happens is that Moses comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. The problem here is that you guys have too much time. If you can fantasize about leaving, that means you have too much time because you have time to fantasize. So let's double the load. Not only will you have to meet your, your quota, but I'm not going to provide you no more with the materials to make cement. They come out, they come to Moses, they come to Pharaoh screaming, why? What did we do? He says, because I hear you're thinking about leaving. And that's when, when Moses comes out, they all they come to Moses and they say, may God repay you, judge you for making things worse for us. Moses turns to God and says, Why have you done these people bad? 
you sent me on a mission of redemption, and instead I ended up being on a mission of intensifying their suffering and their slavery. And God says, he actually only begins the answer, one verse, he says, you will yet see, and to be continued what God asks him next week. I want to just share with you one quick insight on this before we go to our topic, and that is that Moses teaches us something. Moses teaches us that it's all beautiful to be a believer and have faith, but it is our duty to cry out to God against suffering. There's a time to have faith and there's a time to fight. A time to have faith is absolutely. But when you see suffering, don't just say, well, God knows what he's doing. Stand up and cry out to God. Why? Why are you making that person suffering? Haven't people suffered enough? And don't worry about how dare I fight with God. That's what God wants. And Moses teaches us that. With that being said, let's go now to what I want to talk about in this week's Torah portion about the most important relationship we'll ever have. I mentioned to you that it's more than just the, more, the most important relationship. It's the relationship that gives validity to any relationship. And if we don't have this relationship, every other relationship will not be real. It'll always be shaky, always be insecure. So let's talk about the relationship. I mentioned to you that in the beginning, Rashi points out why again are we saying the names? We already know the names. Why again are we counting? What's going on here? And we're taught that there's a reason why. And what is the reason? Because God always gives us the cure before the challenge. Hence, by God calling us by name, by God counting us by name, God is giving us the power not to lose our identity. What does that mean? So when you become a rabbi, when you're taking the specific test that you have to take, in being a rabbi, one of those tests is on the laws called taruvot. Taruvot means mixtures. And what mixtures means is that, just an example, you can't mix meat and milk. Now, what happens if milk falls into a meat soup? So the question is how much milk, how much meat, because we want to know when the milk loses its identity of being a milk. So if I drop in one drop of milk into an army pot of, 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 of chicken soup, really, are you going to say that that milk is going to make the whole chicken pot not kosher? So the answer is 160th. If one drop of milk falls into 60 times its mass, then the milk loses its identity. But if it's less than that in the mass, the ratio, then the milk has an effect on the soup and it's not kosher. That's concerning kosher. There's other laws. Some laws is chad betrei, one and two. Some laws is one in a hundred. Some laws is one in a thousand. There's different laws. Then it goes on to say that there's exceptions to the rule. What is the exceptions to the rule? So you have to understand the logic behind it. The logic is that something loses its identity. So the exceptions to the rule is anything which the identity is so strong that it won't lose it, so the mixture laws don't apply. One of those laws is when you count it by number. Something that you buy in bulk is not chashuv. It's not important. 
Hence, it can lose its identity. Something that you buy by number, give me five, not a pound, not a box, not a case. Give me five. That means that every number, every one of them is chashuv. It's important and it doesn't lose its identity. For example, there's an argument in those laws if eggs are bought by bulk or by number in those days. Now, what would be the difference according to the one that says it's bought by bulk? So if one eagle egg, which is not kosher, gets mixed into X amount of chicken eggs, which are kosher, so you don't have to worry. The mass, it loses itself. However, if you're going to say that it's bought by number, it doesn't make a difference if you have 1,000 or 10,000 chicken eggs. You only have one eagle egg. It will never lose its identity. Now, that's one, by the way. There's other things that make things not lose their identity. Now we understand what's happening here. The Jews are being brought into their exile. Hence, we're only one sheep among 70 wolves. We are a small number. According to all laws of mixtures, we should lose our identity. Hence, God goes ahead and counts us to tell us that you now have the law of an identity that will never be lost, regardless of the outnumbering and ratio of the masses. So too Rashi points out that he calls us by name. Why? Because that is cherished. When you're cherished, then you have an importance and you don't lose your identity. Now that we got through this legal, mystical stuff, let's talk practical. My friends, the one relationship you need which will make any other relationship real or not real is to have a relationship in which you are the center of that person's life. It should be in childhood, your mother, your father, more importantly, your mother we know. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Not because the mother is bad, not because the mother is mean, not because the mother doesn't love her child, but sometimes the dysfunction doesn't allow for a mother to be emotionally available to have her offspring be the center of her universe. And when a child is not the center of a universe, of someone's universe, if there isn't someone in that person's life who believes that they can walk on water, can do no wrong, is totally untouchable, unconditionally loved, even when needs disciplining, it's unconditionally the center of the universe, of that mother. If a child has that, a child will survive everything in life. A child will have, be able to survive breakups, heartbreak, heartache, suffering, even abuse, because the seed has been planted that this child is chiba, cherished. This child is the center of someone's universe. And eventually when we grow up, we take that someone that taught us that and we shift it to God. We get to understand and believe that we are the center of God's universe. Hence, we will overcome every drop of suffering. Now, not everyone is fortunate enough to have that. 
there are kids who were brought up as lucky kids. The parents had to work. There were kids who were brought up by addictive uh, parents which suffered from addiction. I'm not talking about just the major ones, you know, the alcohol, the drugs, the sex, whatever work. We're talking about they did not, they were driven with an inner pain, probably because of their own lack of being the center of someone's universe. And therefore, you can't in a way give what you don't have. And then we watch our children struggle, not being able to hold their ground, never being able to find inner peace, tranquility, inner strength, the conqueror within them. And it's all because they were never counted and they were never like the stars in the sky for any primary caretaker. Now, my grandmother would often tell me when she would laugh at a doctor that he wasn't a good doctor, she would say in Yiddish, <laughs> a doctor, a cannot crank. And that was a play of words. Yeah, also a doctor. He knows a sickness. Now, knows a sickness is also a way to say he knows nothing. But the play of words is that a doctor's job is not to know the sickness. The doctor's job is to know the cure. In order to know the cure, you have to know the sickness. Of what help is it that I'm going to share with you that we each have to, in order to survive, have been, especially in our formative years, the center of someone's universe if we weren't? So what am I here to tell you? <laughs> uh, by the way, you're doomed. Just, just try to survive. Maybe next reincarnation, you'll be lucky. Maybe last reincarnation, you were lucky. But now just survive. No. What I'm here to tell you is that ultimately speaking, it's God who counted the Jews. It's God who names the Jews. What does that mean? And, and for this level, I don't even need to be talking about Jews specifically. We're talking about the Torah, I'm talking about Jews. What this means is I'm going to share something which really hard to hear, but please hear it. Each and every one of us are foster children in foster homes. We were born to a male sperm donor, a female egg donor. We were in a surrogate mother and we're being brought up in a foster home simply because our biological parents are fostering the child of God. I am not touching the sanctity of the relationship between biological parents and children. But if for whatever reason, in the experience with the biological parents, we were left with a black hole in the center of our being, because the only thing that can fill that is to tangibly feel that we are the center of someone's universe, then we need to know that ultimately speaking, we are children of God. And God and God alone is the one to let us know that we are the center of his universe. Our parents mean well, they tried well, and some succeeded, some didn't succeed. We're talking about parents that are the offsprings of survivors, that were the offspring of chaos. 
No one's pointing fingers. However, the reality is that many of us, if not almost all of us, if we can get over the fear to question our parents' untouchability, will be able to acknowledge that many of us were not fortunate enough to be the center of our parents' universe at the level where it would really drive home the reality of that. Hence, we begin to learn the Torah portion. God counts us. God names us. We are the center of God's universe. And our biological parents do the best that they can. People, thank you. And I hope that we were able to understand this, relate to it. And I'm going to uh, open up for everyone.